There's a great vastness of vision that flows from the Buddha's enlightenment. There's a vision of beings wandering over countless lifetimes through many different realms of existence. There are description of innumerable world systems and unimaginable immensities of time. And at the heart of this vastness of vision, at the heart of the teachings, is the possibility of awakening, the possibility of freedom. Well, not many of us probably have traveled through all of these other realms. But there's another way also of understanding the vastness of the Dharma journey. And that is opening to the mystery of consciousness itself. How the mind creates suffering and the possibilities of freedom. Not theoretically, not as Buddhist philosophy, which may be interesting, but not ultimately transforming. The real question is, how do we experience this in our day-to-day, moment-to-moment experience? All of the Buddhist traditions converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind. Now, there are a lot of differences among the traditions, but they really all come together in an understanding of freedom. In the Pali texts, find often Buddha talking in this way. He said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, which is how the Buddha would refer to himself. The supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. And elsewhere he would say, this is the deathless namely liberation through non-clinging. It's a pretty direct statement. Centuries later, in India, one of the great Indian adepts, Tilopa, instructed his disciple, Naropa, who in turn was the teacher of Mapa, who was then teacher of Milarepa, and so this teaching extends into the Tibetan tradition as well. Tilopa said to Naropa, You are not fettered by appearances. You are not fettered by experience. You are fettered by attachment. So cut your attachment. It's the same teaching, liberation through non-clinging. More recently, a yogi came to me in Barry at IMS, kind of describing his experience of the first two noble truths suffering and its cause, this yogi said to me, suffering is rope burn. You know, if you're holding on to a rope that's being pulled through your hand, the tighter you cling, the more you suffer. What's important, what's critically important, is to understand that not clinging is not some state to imagine in the far-off future. You know, I'll practice maybe 20 years and then maybe I'll have a moment of (laughs) non-clinging. It's really to understand that this is our practice now. That's what we're practicing. 
all of the techniques and all of the methods and all of the teachings serve this end. That is the mind of no craving, the mind of no clinging, the mind of no attachment. As you've seen, even in these few days of the retreat, our unfolding experience keeps changing. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant, sometimes it's neutral. But the practice of liberation is always the same, regardless of what it is that's happening. Okay, what I'm about to say, if you let it in, will save you eons of suffering. (laughs) So, you ready? We're not practicing in order to have some better experience, however wonderful it may be. We're practicing what the Buddha called the heart's release. We're practicing the mind that is letting go of grasping. So how can we accomplish this? How can we accomplish this release of the heart? One fundamental way of practice is through the deepening awareness of impermanence. When we pay attention, when we're not distracted, we can see impermanence on every level of existence. You know, we can see it on the level of the birth and death of galaxies and stars, down to the energy movements of subatomic particles. We see impermanence in all the changes of nature. We see it the change of the seasons, the change of weather. We see it in the changing experience of our relationships. Do any of you have a relationship that has stayed the same? It's not in the nature of things. We see it in our work. We see it in our minds and bodies. How many places in the world and in our own lives have we seen people leading stable, happy, peaceful lives and then something happens suddenly? And the whole world is turned upside down. You know, it could be a natural disaster, it could be war, it could be violence, it could be the onset of illness, it could be an accident. These changes, these inevitable changes, are not a mistake. It's just how things are. But even though we know this intellectually, This is not hard to grasp. We know that things are changing. Somehow we have not really embodied this insight. So another one of my little Vipassana mantras, which came at a time when I I was just out on a hike, you know, in New Mexico, and I had a little hiking accident. And all of a sudden, all of my plans and everything I was thinking of doing, it just got turned, turned around. And in contemplating that and in watching my mind go through various, down various tracks, some more wholesome than others, <laughs> but I came to realize and to, to articulate 
anything can happen anytime. That this is a statement of impermanence. <clears throat> anything can happen anytime. And what was interesting for me in articulating this was that it wasn't depressing. It didn't lead to a kind of fear and paranoia and defensiveness. Oh no, anything can happen anytime, you know, so I have to be really careful. Just the opposite. It was in the acknowledgement things can happen at any time. We don't know. It actually led to this great relaxation. Okay, this is how it is. This is the nature of things. And there was a great relaxation of the heart rather than this futile effort to protect ourselves in ways that are not in accord with the truth of change. Deepening of insight. You know, this is called insight meditation. Well, you've had the first insight of how much our minds wander. The deepening of insight happens through our refinement of the perception of change. And it's very much the work we can do here on retreat. The deeper we see it here on retreat, the more clearly we can see it in our lives in the world. So how do we deepen this insight into change, into impermanence? One way is in your practice to notice not only what it is that's arising, you know, a sound, a thought, a sensation, not only what it is that's arising, but also pay attention to what happens to that object. When we were sitting with Saida Upandita, he has a very particular way of asking yogis to report. It's kind of a a stylized form and a a powerful form. Because we would have to go in and first report on the primary object, you know, the rise and falling, and then report on the different experiences we had in a sitting in just this way, to say what it is that arose, whether we noted it, and what happened to it as we were aware of it. So there was a thought, I noted as thinking, what happened to it? Did it stay? Did it disappear? Pressure arose. I noted it, then report what happened to it. Did it get stronger? Did it get weaker? Well, this is very demanding, because we won't know what happened to the object unless we are really paying close attention. The more or less mindfulness doesn't work here. You know, it really requires a very careful looking. So it's, it's a powerful training for us in seeing the changing nature moment to moment. <coughs> we see that sounds are disappearing, one breath follows the next, sensations come and go, and even each of those things is not a single thing. The breath is not a single object. There are many, many sensations happening within a breath, within a half-breath, within a sound, within a sensation. When we bring our attention in close, the truth of change, the truth of impermanence becomes so vivid. And we see that our experience, this whole mind-body process, is like the flow of a river or water over a waterfall, not lasting, not resting even for a moment. 
So we can see this. We can train our mind. And a lot of the practice we do is this training in very careful attention. Now, one of the most (coughs) strange aspects of our delusion, and (coughs) this is pretty common, when we look back at our past experience, almost all of us really can see its dreamlike nature. You know, from years ago to the last moment, Where is your experience of this morning's sitting? Or what you were doing before you came on retreat? Or a year ago? Who can even remember a year ago? (laughs) Last week. (laughs) So we know this. We know that our past experience, it really is very dreamlike and ephemeral. ephemeral. But here's where the delusion comes in. Because in thoughts of the future... In thoughts of experience to come, we get enchanted by the array of possibilities, you know, as if some new experience will finally fulfill us, even though nothing we've experienced to date has. <laughs> but somehow we live in this delusion that, well, the next thing. I mean, have you fantasized at all about the first thing you're going to do when you leave the retreat? (laughs) You know, maybe it's connecting with your partner, or maybe it's sleeping in your own bed, or maybe it's telling your friends about your knee pain. (laughs) You know, know, having a cappuccino. Whatever it is, whatever your particular fantasy is, each one of those experiences will also soon be past that same dreamlike nature. And the older we get, it also seems to be flying by more and more quickly. You know, this, somebody commented once, which I just think is very apt, you know, that at a certain age, breakfast seemed to happen every 15 minutes. <laughs> And it's like that. (laughs) It's going really quickly, and it goes quicker and quicker. And yet we keep thinking, oh, well, yeah, just the next thing that I'm going to do, that's going to really do it for us. Uh, The Zen master and poet and hermit and all-around wonderful being, Ryokan, at the end of his life, he wrote a very poignant, you know, there's wonderful poetry of Ryokan. Uh, he wrote this really poignant little poem. He said, late at night, listening to the winter rain, was it only a dream? Was I really young once? And it's like that. Through our direct and intimate and immediate experience of impermanence, seeing it, reflecting on it, that whatever arises will also pass away. This is the nature of things. This is the law. This is the Dharma. That all of experience is simply part of this endlessly passing show. 
through seeing this clearly and repeatedly, we loosen the grip of clinging and attachment. It's through seeing this, and it's not constructing it, it's just opening our eyes to what is already here, how things are happening, by opening our eyes, our minds, our hearts to this truth. It deconditions this very strong attachment, very strong clinging. The liberating power of seeing impermanence was expressed in a very radical and startling statement of the Buddha. And it's, this statement to me is a real wake-up call. He said, it's better to live a single day to see the momentary, the instantaneous rise and fall of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing that. So what does that say to everything we value? You know, to where we put our energy? It's not that other things aren't valuable or worthwhile, but the Buddha is saying, it's better to live a single day to see the, this momentary rise and passing of phenomena than a hundred years without it. Why? Because it's precisely through the seeing of it that we begin to get a taste of freedom. It's not just another passing experience. We actually see the possibility of liberation. So the Buddha gave some pretty explicit instructions in terms of freeing our hearts from this habit of grasping. So if you're interested in liberation, in freedom, the Buddha said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, now again, relate to this to your experience, not as philosophy. He's talking to us, he's telling us, look at your experience in this way. Whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana, personally attain the unconditioned. This not clinging, it's not a question of pulling away from experience, but rather in learning to not hold on. And so this is the difference really between detachment and non-attachment. People often confuse this. You know, they hear these words and they think, oh, well, that means, you know, living a very detached and indifferent life. And the word detachment sort of implies that, you know, pulling away from. That's very different than non-attachment. In non-attachment, we're right there in the experience fully without grasping, without holding, without attachment. So the instruction is pretty clear. You know, this direction of freedom. But in case we're still missing it, 
you know, as clear as it is, the Buddha helped us even further. And that's why he was such a compassionate teacher. He didn't just stop with saying, don't cling, (laughs) don't get attached. What he did was also point out to us those areas where we habitually do cling so that we can really pay attention in these arenas of our lives. The first and most obvious place where clinging and attachment happens is our attachment to pleasures of the senses. And that includes the mind as the sixth sense. And this is what Kamala spoke of some last night. We enjoy, we like, we get attached to pleasant sights and sounds and smells and tastes. Sight, sound, smell, taste, sensations. (laughs) And thoughts and emotions and mind objects. I mean, this is all familiar to us. We also get attached just to these reveries of the mind. You know, we can just sit here and it's a pleasant way to spend the hour. You know, when you're lost in a reverie and just kind of enjoying that, it goes pretty quickly. You know, and the bell ring, oh yeah, that was a nice sitting. (laughs) But really it's just that attachment to the pleasure of that is a kind of sense pleasure. And even when the thoughts or images are not pleasant, it's kind of of strange, we still get attached to the rather dubious pleasure of simply being lost. You know, and the mind seems to like that. When we look, in, in many of the ways Kamala talked about, when we really look at the nature of desire, you know, of our attachment to, to these pleasures, it, re- it reveals a lot about the power of addiction, the power of fascination, the power of wanting. story which I've told often, but it so illustrates how deeply rooted this is, is the story of the Dalai Lama. In, this is quite a few years ago. He was at a conference in L.A., He was staying in a hotel, and then every day he was driven to the conference hall. And he was being driven down this street where there were a lot of stores with all the latest technological gizmos. And he has a liking and an interest in all that. So every day he would be driven by, and at the conference at the end of the week, he was talking about this, and he said, you know, by the end of the week... I found myself wanting things even though I didn't know what they were. <laughs> it's just that this is the Dalai Lama. You know, so. <laughs> the power of this mind, the power of the wanting mind, you know, the desiring mind, I call it catalog consciousness. <laughs> Have you had the experience of making the mistake of opening a catalog. <laughs> and then find the my kind of turning page, even if it's a catalog for things you have no interest in, <laughs> kind of turning the pages, waiting for something to want. <laughs> it's amazing. It's like we're wanting to want. 
it takes a lot of discipline to kind of just <laughs> throw the catalog out. This is a very strong, habituated pattern in us. So again, it doesn't mean that we don't act in the world. And it doesn't mean that we don't experience pleasant feelings when they come, because they will come. But can we be present in the experience of them without clinging and without desire becoming the driving force in our lives? That's what we're learning here. To be aware of pleasant, to be aware of unpleasant. And there's a place of equanimity that we can touch where it really doesn't make any difference. In addition to pleasant sense experience, we can also cling, and perhaps it's an even more powerful clinging, to pleasant meditative experience. You know, and even though at the beginning of practice there's a lot often of pain and discomfort and struggle, but at a certain point we come to a place where the meditation can be intensely joyful and happy and blissful. You know, there's light, there's rapture, there's calm, there's happiness. What's interesting in the path is that <clears throat> these qualities, these experiences which we work so hard you know, to have, and many of them are factors of awakening, factors of enlightenment, but at a certain point in practice, they actually are called corruptions of insight. You know, here we work so hard, you know, and struggle, and finally we experience some happiness and some light and some ease, and then we get to a place and the teacher says, Oh yeah, this is just a corruption of insight. <laughs> Why? What happened? What happens is that at that particular stage we get attached to those states. We think, Oh yeah, this is it, this is the end, this is what I've been practicing for. And so it becomes an obstacle unless we see it clearly. At one point in my practice in Burma, I'd been there for a few months and going through you know, the various ups and downs. And I'd been going through a really difficult spell. It just, it just felt like I was trudging through you know, the morass. And it was just... The meditation was work. You know, and I just kept sitting and walking and sitting and walking, and it felt like I was just going over the same ground again and again and again. But I just, I just kept doing it. And then, this, this went on for quite a while, like for a couple of weeks or more. And then at a certain point, it was like there was a breakthrough, and the meditation opened up into this beautiful space of openness and spaciousness and clarity. And I thought, ah, this is really nice. You know, and I felt like I deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> And so I reported that for, you know, one day, and then the second day, <clears throat> the third day, I go in and report it, and Sayadaw says to me, haven't you enjoyed this long enough? <laughs> <You know? clears throat> because he really was seeing the attachment that I had. It can take many forms, this attachment to meditative states. For experienced meditators especially, sometimes we get attached to the unfolding process itself. You know, we get so fascinated by the unfolding, whether it's on the physical energetic level or the 
psychological level or the emotional level, you know, we begin to see things unwinding, we really get fascinated by the process. This was a little later in that same retreat that I just mentioned, where my mind had gotten really fine. I was just seeing the most microscopic you know, elements of things arising and passing, and I was so fascinated and so, it was so compelling. And I go in for another interview, this was some time later, and all Saira Upandita says to me is, you're too attached to subtlety. <laughs> and it was such a good feedback, you know, because here I thought it was good practice. I thought that's exactly what I was supposed to be doing. And yet my mind had just gotten so fascinated with the subtlety of things that it was another form of grasping. It was another form of clinging. So it gets very tricky. You know, we really <coughs> need to keep in mind what it is that we're practicing. That is the mind of no grasping. Freedom is not in some particular new experience. It's in the mind that has let go. So, another little Vipassana mantra for you. This one also has tremendous power. There's a lot. (laughs) I don't know, it's like giving away all the secrets. But this one really will be helpful. <laughs> oh, well. Okay. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. You do not have to wait for some special great experience to not cling to. You cannot cling now to whatever it is that's arising. Did you get that? It does not matter to what you don't cling. So might as well practice right now. This makes a huge difference in our practice. You know, because we hear this and we can know it, and still there's this strong impetus of attachment to some new experience. Oh, you know, if I just do this, this, and this, then that'll happen. And really what we want to be doing is letting go, moment to moment. There's one verse from the Dhammapada, which is a collection of the Buddha's teachings, which I think if we, we could hear it in the right way, it would be enough to enlighten us, you know, just in the moment. So, it said, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present and cross over to the further shore. It's that last, you know, let go of the past we know, let go of the future we know, let go of the present. Can we release the mind, even from the present, and cross over to the further shore? So attachment, the first arena of attachment is to sense pleasures, to meditative pleasures, the second area of attachment, which is a huge part of our lives, you know, and the cause of so much suffering, 
is the attachment we have to our views and opinions about things. We get attached to being right. What's so amazing, we often have very strong opinions about things we know nothing about. (laughs) It does not seem to stop the mind from being very attached to our particular viewpoint. It's really instructive to distinguish between what we really know from what we don't. And even about things we do know, I think it's really helpful to keep an open mind. You know, it's very easy to develop pride about knowledge or even insight, spiritual insight. People get very attached to that. And this attachment and pride, what it does is it closes us off to other points of view. It closes us off to other perspectives, to other possibilities. When we cling to our own particular perspective, our own point of view, our own beliefs, even to the insight and knowledge that we might have, when we cling to it, it just leads to sectarian conflict. You know, we can see the tremendous danger of this in the world today, particularly in attachment to religious beliefs. Now, how much of the violence and the conflict in the world is because of this strong sectarian attachment? And it doesn't mean not having the beliefs or the understandings. It's about clinging to it. And the Dalai Lama is such a beautiful embodiment of kind of respect and tolerance and embracing you know, of different points of view, even as he's totally committed to his own. I was at one Buddhist-Christian dialogue, this was quite a few years ago, in Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky with Thomas Merton. Uh, and there were kind of 50, uh, 25 Buddhists and 25 Christians and kind of dialoguing and talking. And at one point, uh, His Holiness said, you know, in talking to the Christians, my way is right for me, your way may be right for you. And it wasn't, that wasn't said in the sense of separation. It was said in the sense of mutual respect. And one of the most transforming moments of that conference for the abbot of Gethsemane, at the end of the conference he was giving a little you know, closing talk, he said that one of the most transforming moments for him in that whole conference was one day we had come out of the chapter house and were just walking down the hall and he said he noticed the Dalai Lama all by himself you know, and he didn't know anybody was watching him stop in front of a statue of Mary and just bow. And so this, this was not for show, it wasn't for it was just a very genuine movement of respect. And I said, the, ab- the abbot of Gethsemane, he said, that meant more than all the words. So it's a good reminder to us. It's not that we don't have a point of view or an understanding or levels of insight. 
but can we have that openness of heart rather than clinging or attachment to them? When we take teachings to be statements of ultimate truth, there will inevitably be conflict. Because these teachers say this, and these teachers say that, and this can happen even within traditions. When we see teachings as skillful means for liberating the heart, all the teachings can be seen as different skillful means, some more skillful than others for us individually. If we see them as skillful means for liberation, then conflicting views are not a problem. We just take a very pragmatic approach. Does this help free my mind from clinging or not? It actually becomes possible to learn from one another when we're not attached to our own views and opinions. And all of this is summed up in a great teaching by the Zen master Bankai. I think he was 17th century, 16th century. He said, don't side with yourself. And it's just very interesting to watch ourselves go through the day and to see how often we do. So there's attachment to sense pleasures, there's clinging to meditative pleasures, there's clinging to views and opinions, things about which we know, things about which we don't know. The deepest attachment that we have, and the one that is really the root cause of the suffering in our lives and in the world is the very deeply conditioned attachment to the concept of self, of I. The idea that there is someone behind experience to whom it is happening. This constructed reference point of a self, it's a mental construct. This constructed reference point of a self happens because we don't observe deeply enough and carefully enough the composite, impermanent nature of our experience. We just take a quick look at the appearance of things and think that they're solid and whole, and yes, that's me, and we're not really looking more deeply. So just some examples of how we construct the self in this way. Most of us are quite identified with this body. Who am I? Well, um, this is who I am. But then just reflect, and this is, this is just a simple reflection. If you think you know, of a young infant, and a baby, and then a child, and a teenager, and a young adult, and middle age, and old person, and then dying person, and corpse. Just the changes of the body, you know, in all of that time. Which one is the self? Which one is I? Which one is me? Because it's not the same body, it's clear that it goes through changes. Friend, this, this is a number of years ago, had this laparoscopic surgery, you know, for a fibroid tumor. And, you know, they go in, miniaturized camera and laser, and they kind of cut away the tumor. Uh, and you come out of the operation, and they give you a video of the whole thing. 
Well, she wasn't interested, I was. <laughs> I, really, I, I really wanted to see it, so I kind of slip it into the VCR. And it's, it's amazing because there's this amazing journey through the body. You're seeing it from the inside, and you're seeing the organs and the blood and, and the tumor and all of it. And it's such a lesson because when we see the body in that way, we're not that likely to identify with the gallbladder as being self. Or the liver, yep, that's me, that's Joseph. But it's so remarkable, we just wrap it up in skin. You know, it's not nicely packaged. Yeah, this is who I am, where there's a strong attachment, a strong identification. Why? Because we're just not seeing deeply enough, we're not seeing clearly enough, and so we're living in this illusion that this body is something solid and more or less permanent, and it's who I am. And the Buddha is trying to kind of wake us up to just see things as they are. You know, and that was one way of doing it. Ramana Maharshi, you know, who was a great Indian saint of the last century, he said, to identify with the body to identify with the body. That's the key point. And yet seek happiness is like attempting to cross a river on the back of an alligator. (laughs) Not a good idea. (laughs) So that's one construction of the self, this identification with the body. We create the felt sense of self when we're lost in and identified with the thoughts. And you've seen this you know, countless times, even in these days. I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm judging, I'm remembering. The I is extra. The thought is thinking itself. It's not that the thought belongs to someone. The thought is arising, the thought is the thinker. Or we identify with the stories we make up about experience, the stories we make up about ourselves. I mean, one of the things which becomes very clear in meditative practice is how much of our practice and how much of our lives in the world we are living in the world of mental projection. We just make up stories. I mean, how many thoughts have you had about your fellow yogis? Probably a number, you know, or about people in your life, or even standing online at the supermarket. You know, people you don't even know, you haven't seen before, you'll never see again. It doesn't stop the mind from having a nice little judgment or story about them. And if we're not mindful, we, even if it's for just a few moments, we inhabit that world. One time at IMS, we have the tradition there that when there are monastics, you know, nuns or monks, that they go first uh, for food. They go uh, serve food first. So it was on one retreat, and there was a, a Westerner who was ordained as a Korean nun. So she was, she was there practicing. So she was first online for food, and I was, I was standing right behind her. Then I go see her going up to the dining room table, and I see her with two plates... I'm just kind of loading food on. And my mind just goes on this little trip. Yeah, that's not very nun-like. 
know, and she's kind of putting food on this plate and food on this plate. And meanwhile, I'm saying, come on, come on, come on. You know, there's a whole line of people waiting. <laughs> so I was getting impatient and, and a little judgmental about this whole thing. And then she goes through the line, and then I see she takes the food, and she brings over one plate to a blind person who's on the retreat, and she was getting food for them. And so then you can imagine how I felt. <laughs> a little self-judgment came up. <laughs> but it was just so, my mind just made up this story. You know, it kind of saw something, made up a whole story, wasn't even remotely true, you know, had all kinds of feelings about it. That's what happens when we get lost in our thoughts. We're getting lost in this world of projection. As I mentioned earlier, the only power that thoughts have is the power that we give them. And yet they're tremendously seductive. They pull us in again and again. I call them the little dictators of the mind. You know, because these thoughts are coming and when we're not mindful, they're just directing our lives. Go here, go there, do this, do that. Now it's so amazing, and this really is quite amazing, that when we're not aware of the thoughts, they have this tremendous power, they run our lives, and yet when we are aware of them, we see that they're little more than nothing. There's not much there. It's just like a little momentary energy blip and it's it's gone. And yet, if we're not aware of them, they assume this tremendous power in our lives. So there's something going on here that we should pay attention to. An exercise, which you might do sometime in sitting and walking, just hold the question... What is a thought? Not what is the thought saying, but what is a thought as a phenomenon? And it's not, the holding the question is not to get an intellectual answer. Rather, it's just to focus your awareness, to focus your mindfulness, so that when a thought comes, you are really looking directly at it, trying to understand, trying to see its essentially empty nature. It's quite amazing to see thought in this way. One of the great Tibetan teachers of the last century, Kensi Rinpoche, he said, thoughts have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us nor any reason why we should be so enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, then then they will continue to torment us mercilessly, as they have been doing through countless lifetimes. So we have the opportunity many, many times a day to really refine our awareness, refine our mindfulness. See the thoughts as they arise, look into them, see into the empty nature. It is so freeing.
We create a felt sense of self, not only in identification with the body or with thoughts, but also when we get identified and lost in the various arising emotions. I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm depressed. And then we build it even further. I'm an angry person, I'm a happy person, I'm a depressed person. You know, so we build this whole superstructure of self on top of momentary changing conditions. At one point I was working with a lot of fear in my practice. And it was just, it was both on retreat and off retreat, that's what was coming up, you know, for a whole period. And at one point I was, I was teaching with uh, Sharon Salzberg, we were teaching in Texas. And we were taking a walk after lunch and I was just going on and on and on about my fear and how deeply conditioned it was and I'm such a fearful person and I'm going to need 30 years of therapy to unwind this fear and, you know, I was just making this whole self-story. And she turned to me and she said, and it's something I had said a thousand times to people, you know, she, but sometimes, you know, it's just the right moment to hear something. She turned to me and said, it's just a mind state. And it was just the right moment. Yeah, this is just a mind state. I just saved myself all that therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Can we be with emotions in the same way, the same open way we're with sound. So that can become a reference point for you. You know, when there's sound, it just appears and disappears, the mind stays open, spacious, not a problem. When emotions arise, can we practice holding that same space of openness and awareness? The emotion arises, it's forming like a cloud formation. It's arising out of conditions, The emotion is there, that whole constellation of experience we call sadness or happiness or despair, whatever it is. It's a cloud formation. Can we be the sky? It comes together, the conditions are there, it passes away. And we really remain at ease in our experience of the whole range of emotion, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. When you think of clouds, clouds don't have roots and they don't have a home, right? They're just formations coming together and dissolving as conditions change. Well, for some reason, we root emotions. You know, we, we, yeah, this is the home, this is their home. And we don't see that they are impermanent, they're a composite. They are not self, just like everything else. But it's difficult to see this because emotions are often what we most personalize. You know, we can kind of see the thoughts coming and going, but when a strong emotion arises, that's me. You know, I'm having this emotion. So one way of working with it is to really see how very often a thought will trigger an emotion. So you begin to see the conditioned nature of it. Watch for the trigger point. You're going along, rising, falling, in and out, and then something happens which triggers the emotion. If you can catch the trigger point, then you begin to see that the emotion is 
really a conditioned phenomenon. All levels of understanding condition the emotions we feel. You know, what for some people could be hugely upsetting, for another person, could leave them totally at ease. One of my favorite Ryokan stories. He was up in the mountains, he was living in this little hut, had almost no possessions. You know, he came back one day from wandering the, the mountains, and he found that the few possessions he had had all been stolen. You know, so nothing. It was just a, a bare hut. So he composed a haiku. <laughs> the moon at the window. The thief left it behind. <laughs> okay, so just imagine going home to your... After the retreat. <laughs> everything gone. The moon at the window. <laughs> Probably not. (laughs) So how we feel very much depends on our level of understanding, the level of attachment, the level of non-attachment. The most subtle level of identification, which gives birth to this sense of I, is when we identify with consciousness or awareness itself. You know, we create that reference point of a witness or an observer. Even when we understand to some extent the selfless transitory nature of the body and of thoughts and of emotions, still we have the sense that we are the ones knowing it all. That's, that's like the last holdout of this sense of I. So one little trick... This is, very, this is a very subtle attachment and identification, so it takes ongoing practice and careful observation to begin to unpack it. But one way that might be helpful, it's been helpful for me, is to reframe experience in the passive voice. So this is what I mean. Thoughts being known, a sensation being known, a sound being known. Because when we frame it in that way, we take the I out of it. It's not, even linguistically, in the way we're holding it, it's not I'm knowing a sound or I'm knowing a thought, I'm knowing a sensation. A thought is being known. A sensation is being known. So right in that way, the I is out of it, and then there's just the experience and the spontaneous knowing of the experience. No one doing anything. And then we can take one step further and hold the unspoken question, known by what? What is that experience of knowing, of awareness? I mean, this is the great mystery of consciousness, because when we look for it, there's nothing to find. You go, oh, there it is. And yet, the knowing is happening moment after moment. So we can live in this experience. And this particular aspect, I really worked a lot with in the walking because it was so obvious. It's like just moving and the sensations of the movement were arising spontaneously. 
I didn't have to do anything to have the sensations arise. They were just appearing as I walked, and they were being known spontaneously. And then just holding that question, well, what is the nature of that knowing? Seeing there's nothing to find, and yet the knowing is there. So it can really be in the very direct experience of this, exploring the nature of consciousness, the nature of awareness. So liberation through non-clinging. We accomplish it through our refinement of the perception of change, of impermanence. We accomplish it by seeing where we do cling and practicing letting go. We see it through the direct experience of selflessness Buddha said, and this is, this is really kind of a, a great instruction to us, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So this isn't a philosophic statement. This is a direct instruction for freedom. I'd like to close with this is a teaching from the Tibetan tradition. It's a very brief teaching. It says, consider all phenomena to be dreams. Be grateful to everyone. Don't be swayed by outer circumstances. Don't brood over the fault of others. At all times, simply rely on a joyful mind. Don't expect a standing ovation. (laughs) So let's sit for a couple minutes. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the further shore. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.